Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Daniel writes, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow or white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched. Then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I'm splitting the seventh chapter of Daniel into three sections. We've looked at verses 1 through 8. And remember, it described Daniel's visions of the four beasts. The lion with four wings in, in verse 4. The bear with ribs in verse 5. The winged four-headed leopard in verse 6. And the terrible beast in verses 7 and 8. We have already looked at the setting of Daniel's dream. The sequence of Daniel's dream. The schooling of Daniel's dream. And you'll remember that the dream was a picture of the unfolding of human history. The preservation of human history and then the purpose of human history. Now we begin the second part of Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through 14. And in this section of the prophecy, we see two events occurring simultaneously. Events in heaven and events on the earth. A revelation of the kingdom of God and a revelation of the kingdom of men. Now, I'm always happy that you're able to come out, particularly on Wednesday nights, particularly when there's a presidential debate. How many of you T-voted? Some of you did. My children have pointed out to me the miracle of modern technology. I was watching my son Anthony, and he was with the remote, and he's going through the channels. Now, remember, um, we live in a world where there's four or five hundred different channels. Now, I grew up in a world where there was Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 11. You had ABC, NBC, CBS, and you may have had a couple of other kinds of channels. Now, I went into one of those dialogues with my son. You know, Anthony, when I was a boy, we didn't have 500 channels. We had three channels. And you couldn't actually flip through the channels, you, you know what, I had to actually get up and turn the knob in order to change the channel. Now, he pointed out to me the miracle of TiVo, or some people call it DVR. And some of you are aware that, that televisions have split screen capabilities. Some of you have utilized it where you can watch two programs simultaneously. And he's actually told me that, that you can actually watch a program, record another program, and record another program, and even if they come on at exactly the same time. It's like a miracle. What I want you to do for this particular study is imagine a flat screen. 53 inches. 
And it's a split screen, and you can see the top of the screen, and you can see the bottom of the screen. Remember, we looked at the History Channel, and now we're going to be looking at both the History Channel and the Future Channel. The Future Channel is on the top, and the History Channel is on the bottom. And so the first part of the film unfolds on the bottom half of the screen. In Daniel chapter 7, as the bottom half of the screen comes to life, you see human civilization begin to unfold. Daniel has a, has a vision of Babylon, of the Medes and the Persians, of the Greeks and the Romans. And at the top of the channel... Right when we see human civilization fading from the past into the future, we see nation devouring nation, beast consuming beast, until the last great empire comes out of the sea of humanity. And when this last empire comes out of the sea of humanity, the top of the screen all of a sudden pops open. And you see on the top of the screen an incredible vision. An incredible vision with an incredible throne. And in that incredible throne is seated an incredible being. One of the problems that Bible teachers and Bible students have faced as they've examined the subject of prophecy is the fact that the Old Testament... When you read it, when you read Isaiah, when you read Jeremiah, when you read Ezekiel and you see the coming of Jesus, you see the coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus almost like a simultaneous event. Imagine you live in the front range. Oh, that's pretty easy for you to do. Imagine that you can look at the front range of the mountains. And as you see the mountains, you see some of the 14ers, 14,000 feet. And you look at it, and, and they're so close, you look like you could actually touch them. Now, for those of you who hike and those of you who spend any time up in the mountains, is it possible to see a peak and miss the valley that's between two gigantic peaks? It's almost like an invisible valley. The same is true. Imagine you're staring at the Rocky Mountains. You see majestic mountains, but what you don't see is the hidden valley that separates the mountains. In the prophecies of the Messiah, sometimes the first coming and the second coming, because they do seem to run together, Isaiah, Jeremiah didn't necessarily were able to distinguish between the first coming and the second coming. An example of this is actually found in the book of Isaiah. You'll remember that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read in the synagogue of Capernaum from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. You remember how it goes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops. But there's more to the sentence, isn't there? It's to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of of vengeance of our God. Between the time of to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God is now coming close to 2,000 years. Because Jesus really did fulfill the first part of that prophecy. In his earthly ministry, Jesus proclaimed the good news to the captives. Jesus bound up the brokenhearted. He preached the good news. But did he proclaim the year of judgment and vengeance? Not really. The day of vengeance of our God is yet to happen. The prophecy still awaits future fulfillment. 
in Daniel chapter 7, we have exactly the same kind of prophetic circumstance. Daniel is speaking about future kingdoms, but those future kingdoms are passed to us. The Babylonian Empire has come and gone. The Medes and the Persians have come and gone. The Greeks have come and gone. The Romans have come and gone. But there is a future kingdom yet to emerge that's going to come up out of the debris and rubble of that broken Roman Empire. And it's yet future. And it's still future to us. And so when Daniel mentions the beast with ten horns, he's reaching into a far future kingdom that speaks of a time that might unfold right before your eyes. Isn't that interesting? In order for this future kingdom to arise, I'm going to suggest something to you. That other kingdoms and other world powers are almost certainly going to have to come into decline. You know, we talk about the superpower status of the United States of America. We talk about the emerging Asian markets. But keep your eye on Europe. Now, with the future kingdom that emerges, there's also a, a leader who comes from that future kingdom. It's the Antichrist. And then we see the coming of Jesus Christ. We also have a vision of what Daniel calls the Ancient of Days. And by the way, the term is used only here in chapter 7. And the term is used three times. I've devoted most of my adult life, obviously, to the study of the Scriptures. This is the only place that I have been able to discover in the Scriptures which pictures God in human form. Now, here's what we know. We know that God is a spirit, don't we? And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what it says in, Dan in, in John chapter 4. But here, Daniel sees a vision of the Father as the Ancient of Days. And in the language of the Bible, it literally means the Elderly One. Or the one who has been around forever. Now, again, you may come to a time in your life where you know more people in heaven than you do on the earth. You may come to a point in your life where you remember the 30s and the 40s and the 50s instead of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. But if we continue marching into the future, into the teens and the 20s, you'll remember these times and someone might call you the Ancient of Days. Now, as Daniel sees the Lord, he sees Him in His holiness. He sees Him in His eternal nature. He sees Him in His purity. He sees Him in majesty. He sees Him in authority as the deity. And look again in verse 9. The Ancient of Days in Heaven. Uh, we're, we're back at the top of the split screen. We're seeing Heaven. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair of His head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. Now, remember what I said. You're looking at the top of the screen, but I want you to glance at the bottom of the screen just for a moment. At the bottom of the screen, the earth is in chaos. The government is in chaos. The kingdoms of men are in upheaval. There is economic collapse. There is food insecurity. There is disease. There are wars. There are nations devouring each other like hungry beasts. And then you look up at the top of the screen. And there's a picture of the majesty of God. And by the way, Daniel, like Isaiah, sees the Lord seated on the throne and the prophet sees the rise and fall of the human kingdoms. But all of a sudden, with 
the picture of the majesty of God seated on his throne, human civilization begins to fade into almost insignificance. And he says, I watched till thrones were put in place. This thrones always in the Bible speaks of power, authority, and rule. In Revelation chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 5, there are no fewer than 17 references to the thrones of men and then the thrones of God. The vision of Daniel first describes his eternity. He is called the Ancient of Days. And again, the Bible leaves us with the impression that he's the source of all time, without beginning, without end, without genesis. He is the self-existent being. In Psalm 29, verse 10, it says, The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. God isn't subject to election cycles. Republicans may come in. Democrats may go in. The kingdoms of human beings are raised up. The the kingdoms of human beings fall down. In Isaiah chapter 57, for those of you who are with me in Isaiah, you might remember verse 15 where Isaiah says, For thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says this, I dwell in the high and the holy place. And remember, when we studied that passage, we discovered what that meant. When he says, I dwell in the high and the holy place, it means the place where you can't go. You can never be so high and you can never be so holy as to dwell with him. But then he says this, with him who has a contrite and a humble heart, to revive the spirit of the humble. Even though he dwells in the high and the holy place, he seems to also dwell in the lowly place with men and women whose hearts are broken. He's willing to come down to you in your brokenness and revive the heart of the contrite ones. And next Daniel describes his garment white as snow. And again, the Bible, when it speaks of white as snow, it's a picture of absolute purity. You'll remember elsewhere in the Bible where it says, though your sins be as scarlet, he will make them white as snow. And so this is a picture of the purity of the Father who occupies the seat of authority. And he occupies the seat of authority in absolute purity. And what that means is without compromise. Daniel sees God in his majesty. And the Lord God is seated on the throne. A throne, if you take a quick peek in chapter 7, where he says, I watched till thrones were put in its place. The idea being that God's throne is established. This person is the sovereign judge of the universe. But guess what? The picture that you now see is the picture of judgment that's about to come to the world. So we move from a God who is eternal. We move from eternity to purity to majesty to authority. And look at his throne is described as a fiery flame. It's wheels, a burning fire. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, is this God's ride? Is this like the vehicle that he drives? And I know what you're thinking. Is it an Audi? Is it a Volkswagen? It's wheels, a burning fire. Hey, the truth is, It's not a description of God's mode of transportation. Most Bible commentators suggest that the meaning of the wheels carrying the throne is the idea that God will fulfill judgment anywhere in the universe. And this becomes important for you and me. A lot of times you're left with the impression that God is in heaven and you're on the earth 
that God is in heaven and it doesn't matter what happens on the earth. God is in heaven, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there's no place that can escape his judgment. If I were to put it in terms that hopefully each and every one of you can understand, is his throne is a portable throne that can move from place to place according to his own good will. And in verse 10, look what it says. A fiery stream issues and comes forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books are opened. Now remember... Fire is a picture of what in the Bible? Judgment. Judgment. Fire prepares the vessel for the judgment of God. Fire is also a picture of God's presence. Fire consumes. Fire purifies. Fire judges. And by the way, when the Bible talks about things being thrown into the fire, they're broken down into their elemental constituents. In other words, Fire breaks down the elements to its fundamental composition. And in Daniel's vision, God's throne is bathed in fire. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? In chapter 12, verse 29, Our God is a consuming fire. Why? Because fire also speaks of God's presence. Do you remember that when Moses had his encounter with the Lord, that the Lord appeared as a fire, a burning bush that didn't consume the bush? And so Daniel's attention moves from the throne to the throng, the crowd. But in that we see the magnificent deity of God. It says a thousand thousands minister to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. How many is that? It's a lot less than the national debt. Yeah, the whole point of the passage isn't the number. Do you remember when you were a kid and you're playing a game and you're trying to come up with the biggest number? I love you this much. I love you a thousand. I love you a million. I love you a billion. I love you a trillion. What's the biggest number that we can think of? Anybody? Gazillion, whatever. My, my children would say, infinity. And then Anthony would say, infinity plus one. It becomes a, a way of describing an unlimited number. And by the way, 10,000 times 10,000 was the largest number that they could come up with at that particular time. And so it, it, it certainly means a large number. And who are these people? Who are these beings? Is this the angelic hosts? Are these saved saints? Is it a combination of both? They bow and worship the Lord. They bow and worship Him because He's deserving of all honor and praise and worship. And you'll note in verse 10 that in that vision of this God who occupies eternity, the books are opened. And when the books are opened, it means that judgment is about to take place. And you can't cook these books. Fortune 500 companies may be able to cook the books. Banks might be able to cook the books. People might be able to misrepresent the content. But this is the eternal record. Now, you have to ask this question. Why does God keep books? Seriously, ask yourself that. Why would God keep books? Is he afraid he's going to be audited? You know, you need to keep these records for at least seven years past the statute of limitations. I'm being audited this year. It's very, very interesting to me. Because the IRS sent me a, a, a note. And they said, 
hey, you know, we're going to audit you, and we want the records from 2006. I said, fine. No problemo. But is God audited? No. Well, then why should he have books? Does he write down books because he's afraid that he might get deity Alzheimer's? Or we might even say deity dementia. Or lordship long-term memory loss. No. God has a long account to settle. God doesn't keep books for his sake. He doesn't keep books because he remembers all things. God keeps books so the condemned can face their own thoughts, their own words, their own deeds. Nothing is neglected. Nothing is ignored. Nothing is forgotten. Historians and biographers can omit or ignore important bits of information. They can distort the facts. They can revise history. But God misses nothing. Every earthly ruler will have to explain themselves to God. And God has a long account to settle with the rulers of the earth. And the answer is that justice will be done. And God is about to judge. Look at it in its context. The nations. The beasts. The Babylonian Empire. The Persians and the Medes. The the Greeks and the Romans. And this nation that evolves at the end of time and justice will be done and God will judge the nations and he will examine them for their blasphemy for their idolatry he will judge them as guilty and the nations will be examined And they will be examined on the basis of justice. They will be examined on the defense of life. They will be examined on moral integrity. They will be examined on their treatment of God. They will be examined on their treatment of Jesus. They will be examined on their treatment of the saints. Can you imagine? Especially living in the nation in which we live. A nation that rejects God and rejects Jesus and rejects moral accountability and rejects spiritual accountability. That doesn't defend life, but destroys life. So how is our nation different from other nations? Sadly, in many ways, not too different. Our nation certainly started off with great hopes and great expectations. A nation that honors the rights of men and women, that values justice, that values righteousness, that values the ability to openly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and extend the invitation of life in Christ. The nations will be judged. And make no mistake about it. The nation that stands before God and says, I know it said under God in the pledge. I know that it said in God we trust on our money. But we didn't really think you really meant it. Because after all, we had separation of church and state. Hey, we're all for separation of church and state. What we're not interested is separation of morality, of righteousness, of justice. And whatever else you believe about this chapter. And I have at least 26 commentaries, maybe more, on the book of Daniel. Do you know what all of the commentators agree? Whether they're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial, do you know what each and every commentator had to say? This is the only place where there was a unanimous observation and a unanimous application of what was in the text. You know what that observation and application was? Everyone agreed. 
God is in heaven. God is on the throne. God is in control. His enemies think he's out of control. But he is absolutely in control. When the market fell 700 points today, I'm sure that there were people going, Where are you? Where are you, God? Everything that I put into the market since 2004 disappeared. Where are you, God? He's still at the top of the screen. In complete and absolute charge. Opening the books. While the nations on the bottom of the screen are devouring each other. Someone once called the kingdom of God as power. In complete subordination to love. Isn't that good? You know what the kingdom of God really is? It's the place where God rules. It's the place where God reigns. It's the place where God has complete authority. Is that you? Is that your heart? Is that where God rules and reigns? And we see in verse 11, the beast on the earth, I watched Then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Daniel's attention is brought back to the bottom of the screen. And in a single sentence, Daniel sees the message of the beast, the slaying of the beast, the punishment of the beast in burning fire. And remember, for those of you who are with me earlier on in the chapter, who is this little horn? It's the Antichrist. What are the pompous words that it's speaking? It's the blasphemies against God. The beast is the Antichrist. He's risen out of the fourth and final civilization. The kingdoms of humanity are about to come to a close. He speaks for a moment. And in that one sentence, the, 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 the life, the legacy, if you will, of the Antichrist is summed up in a single sentence. The fearful blasphemies of the Antichrist will bring an unmixed, undiluted wrath, judgment from God. And by the way, if you want to fill in that one sentence, it's called the book of Revelation and the Apocalypse. And then the beast and the the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what's interesting is Satan himself will join them a thousand years later. That's found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, the devil who deceives them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, that's this beast, that's this beast, and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Question. How long do you suppose that is? Day and night? Forever? Ever? Are you left with the impression that it's just a short-term stopover? I'm not. As a matter of fact, the reign of terror has run its course. The persecution of God's people has come to an end. The iniquity of the Antichrist's cup is full. And the Antichrist and his followers receive their full and final and proper doom. And in Daniel's vision, it happens in a moment. It seems so long, doesn't it? When you read the Bible, the civilizations of men Babylon, Medes, Persians, you travel from the 5th century B.C. to the 4th century B.C. to the 3rd century B.C. to the 2nd century B.C. and the division of 
the Seleucid Empire, the occupation of Palestine, the birth of Jesus, and then you march into the future, the second century and the third century and the fourth century, and you keep on marching to the Protestant Reformation and the discovery, if you will, of America and the, the establishment of our country and the writing of its constitution and then the flagrant disregard of the constitution. just like we talked about at the beginning of chapter 7. Nations come. Civilizations rise. And then they fall. And then in verse 12 it says, As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It's an interesting passage. And it's difficult to interpret. But let me tell you what I think it says. It says, as for the rest of the beasts, I think it's meaning human civilizations. It's talking about Babylon. It's talking about Medo-Persia. It's talking about Greece. It's talking about Rome. And so, in a sense, where it says they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time, the implication being that nations themselves will have some sort of identity as we march into the future, but they certainly won't have the identity that they once had. And then in verse 13, again, we see the top of the screen. In verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Isn't that interesting? In verses 13 and 14, they are identical. With Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and precede the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2, and verses 13 and 14 in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, describe the investiture. We might call it the crowning of the Son of Man and the Son of David and the kingdom authority. If you've ever witnessed a, a, a king or a queen, being invested on their throne. It's, it's filled with pomp and ceremony and circumstance. And by the way, the order of the fulfillment will be the investiture of the Son of Man with the kingdom, Daniel 7. The, the distress of Psalm chapter 2, verse 5. And that's, that's distress is fully described in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through 22. And then the the return of the Son of Man in glory to deliver the blow, if you will, to the armies that stand in opposition to God and Christ. And we see that as the attention goes to the top of the screen, once again, Daniel's vision is a vision of the coming of the Messiah. And he looks like the Son of Man. Now remember what that means. It means that this Messiah is human. He looks like a human being. And remember, for those of you who have been following along in John's Gospel, as we've been looking at the Gospel of John, the New Testament calls Jesus the Son of Man some 80 different times in the New Testament. Because he identifies with human beings. The Son of David speaks of Christ's royalty. The Son of God speaks of Christ's deity. But the Son of Man speaks of his identification with humanity. And we see now the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman will crush Satan. And then he destroys Satan's seed, the Antichrist. And his kingdom is established. In verse 14 it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. So how does Daniel describe the kingdom of the Messiah? It's unlimited. Now, why is that important? Because the kingdoms of men and the governments of men are limited. So he contrasts one kingdom with another. One is unlimited. The other is limited. Governments of men are gone. Jesus Christ is given dominion, and his dominion is without limitation. 
Jesus reigns as the undisputed monarch of the planet Earth. Now, you got to understand something. You have to understand how crazy that sounds. Can you imagine either one of the presidential candidates going, Well, I believe human history is going somewhere. It's going to unfold. Jesus Christ is going to return and He's going to reign as the sovereign God of heaven. People would go, This guy's nuts. But the Bible says, No. It's true. Because it's not a kingdom for its own sake. It's a kingdom for God's sake. And for Jesus' sake. It's not a nation devoted to a Republican or a Democratic ticket. It's not a nation um, committed to a socialist ticket. It's not a ticket, or it's not a nation submitted to an egalitarian whatever. It is a nation that's completely, fully, finally, biblically devoted to Jesus. It's a kingdom filled with Jesus. It's a glorious kingdom. And guess what? Have we ever seen a kingdom like that? We never have, have we? And the kingdom is united. You know why that's different? Because the kingdoms of this world are torn. There's some 189 sovereign nation groups on the planet Earth. As of July 2007, there were an estimated 6.6 billion people living on the planet. To the best of my understanding, the number of language groups that are on the planet Earth are somewhere between 4,500 and 6 to 7,000 different independent language groups. And of the 6.6 billion people living on the earth, 6.5 billion watch Oprah. I'm just teasing. I'm just joking. It just seems that way. It just sort of seems like that. Can you imagine how difficult it is to keep peace in your heart? For you, just to go through an entire day completely calm. Now think of an entire day where everyone in your family is calm. Think of a day where everyone in your church is calm. Think of a day where everyone in Littleton, Colorado is calm. Think of a day when everyone in the United States of America is calm. Can you imagine a world with six billion people just really okay. Imagine a whole world governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Human government in the Bible is described as chaotic and torn and broken and unjust. But all of that will change with Jesus. Think for a moment. According to Daniel chapter 7, the kingdom of Jesus is unlimited, unique, united. But it's more than that. It's not only unlimited and unique and united, it's universal. It's unending. It's unconquerable. How is the kingdom universal? Well, the kingdoms of men are territorial. But the kingdom of Jesus is over all people, all nations, all languages, and all will serve him. Even the greatest kingdoms in the history of mankind have covered vast territories, governed vast amounts of peoples, even great numbers of language groups. But when Jesus comes, the north and the south and the east and the west will all be united. The the lordship of Jesus will be everywhere north of the equator and everywhere south of the equator. The lordship of Jesus will be everywhere east of the international date line and west of the international date line. There will be no place that will be exempt from the rule of the Messiah. 
And again, unlike the kingdoms of human beings, it's unending and everlasting. The kingdoms of human beings are temporary. Every king imagines a kingdom that is passed from father to son. And Babylon once thought itself invincible and unconquerable, and it would fall in a single night. The Persian Empire stretched literally to the very borders of China and India, and then it brushed up against the Mediterranean Ocean, occupied much of of North Africa, and then it ended. The Greek Empire divided into four regions and withered away. The Roman Empire collapsed under the weight of its own immoral behavior. But the kingdom of Jesus, forever. The kingdom of Jesus, unconquerable. Remember at the bottom of the screen? Like Pac-Man, nation devouring, succeeding nation. But who will conquer Christ? Who will consume Christ? Who rivals Jesus? Who can threaten God? Who can say, hey, I'm going to overthrow Jesus and take his kingdom away from him? Daniel gives us a glimpse of an eternal kingdom. And we see what God has in store for those who love him. And the New Testament says, who are the called according to his purpose. A new kingdom is coming. A new head of humanity. And you won't find him on the Republican ticket. You won't find him on the Democratic ticket. The beast kingdoms and nations of this earth have written their histories in the blood of innocent children, in the injustice towards one another, in the wicked enslavement of each other, in the distribution of wealth, in the prosecution and the persecution of the saints. The parchment, the torn and flayed flesh of people who have resisted them. The ink, their blood. There was a Russian youth who became a conscientious objector to war through reading Tolstoy in the New Testament. And he was brought before a magistrate. And with the strength of conviction, he told the judge of the life which loves its enemies, which does good to those who despitefully use it, which overcomes evil with good, which refuses wars. Da, said the judge, I understand, but you, comrade, must be realistic. These laws you are talking about are the laws of the kingdom of God, and it has not yet come. The young man straightened and said, Sir, I recognize that it has not come for you. It has not come for Russia. It has not come for the world. But the kingdom of God has come for me. And I cannot go on hating and killing as though it had never come. Isn't that good? Has the kingdom of God come into your heart? Does Christ rule inside of you? Does the presence of God and the presence of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God within you cry out for justice, mercy, grace, peace? Would you be shocked and surprised if you heard someone swear, particularly in church, and you go, I can't believe that. That person just swore in church. That is so wrong. And it would be wrong. But what's worse? To pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth, and not mean it, not believe it, not want it. You pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, but you're still committed to your will. You're still committed to your kingdom. You're still fighting for your future. 
There may come a time when you can pray that prayer and really mean it. And when you do, everything will be different. Your life will be different. Your family will be different. Your church will be different. Your nation will be different. And your future will be decidedly different. But we've got the whole rest of the chapter to do next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see the vision unfold of Jesus coming, of Christ reigning, of a kingdom unconquerable, of a kingdom undivided, of a kingdom eternal, of a kingdom committed to justice, of a kingdom committed to truth, of a kingdom committed to love, of a kingdom committed to the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do pray for our nation, this great nation, Lord, we pray for it. Lord, we repent of the wicked and selfish leadership that we have. But more than that, Lord, we pray for a leadership that would come, that would defend life, that would honor God, that would promote righteousness, that would both define and defend justice and then require it. Lord, we long for a world where you're the Lord and you reign supreme. Lord, it makes no sense to pray for that kind of a kingdom unless we have that kind of kingdom in our heart. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would rule and reign, that Jesus would be invested and enthroned and given the right place of sovereignty, majesty, purity in our own hearts. In Jesus' name.